The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning. It's great to see you. Let me pray for our time together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity now to sit under your word. And as has been prayed by many preachers before me, I pray that all those who have gathered here this morning will will hear a far better sermon than the one I'm about to preach. So we pray, come by your spirit and speak in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, we are continuing our Lenten series in the book of Judges this morning. We come now to Gideon, perhaps one of the more famous of the judges. His story picks up here in chapter six and runs all the way through the end of eight. Uh, If you remember uh, Deborah and Barak from last week, Tim pointed out how the author of Hebrews actually commends Barak for his faith. And it's worth saying here at the start that he's placed right alongside Gideon and Samson as those who, the writer of Hebrews says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, and obtained promises. And if you are at all familiar with the story of Gideon, you know that he gets a lot of flack for his fleece here, which seems to reveal a lack of faith and not a commendation for it. Several years ago, Kevin DeYoung, a pastor over in North Carolina, wrote a practical little book with the intriguing title, Just Do Something. Heard of this? It's actually the the subtitle that grabbed my attention even more. Here's what it says. A liberating approach to finding God's will or how to make a decision without dreams, visions, fleeces, little nod to Gideon there, impressions, open doors, random Bible verses, casting lots, liver shivers, writing in the sky, etc. How's that for a subtitle? Well, got me to buy the book. Um, now, to be totally transparent here, I may or may not have tried one or two of those throughout my Christian life when facing a big decision. But it's what we do, isn't it? We say, God, just give me a sign. Show me what to do. Where should I work? Where should I live? Who should I marry? And sometimes God does do that. He certainly has for me. But is that really what's going on here with Gideon when he says, show me a sign? I'm not sure it is. As I've sat with Gideon this week, especially here at the beginning of his story, I find myself giving a lot of grace. Because when I take a step back and I stop treating him like a cartoon character and consider what God is actually calling him to do, I am confronted with my own feelings of inadequacy and fear about the things that God is calling me to do. 
whether it is pastoring or church planting or parenting or even preaching this sermon in front of lots of judges, there are times I feel incredibly weak and insufficient and just want to hide and find myself crying out to God to confirm my calling. And if I had to guess, some of you do as well. So I think Gideon should be given lots of grace, but not because I say so, but because that's exactly what God does here. And yet, at the same time, he is not the hero for us to follow. He is flawed. He is fearful, just like you and me. But his faith is genuine, and his God is gracious, as he is to us. And we'll see that unfold as we go along here. Since we're covering all of chapter 6, 40 verses in 20 or so minutes, we need to pick and choose what we spend our time on. And all I want to do is follow the flow of the text as it comes and quickly consider six things this morning. List them here. First, the condition of sin and its consequence. The convicting sermon. Number three, the condescending savior. Fourth, the altar call. That's for all my Baptist friends in the room, the altar call. Fifth, the confirmation sign. And sixth and last, the question, so what? What does this have to do with me? So first, the condition and consequence of sin. Look at verse one. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, if you've been around, you are starting to see a pattern form here. It's kind of like Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog Day. Have you seen it? Same day, same people, same story. But a relatively quick glance at the first six verses reveals an absolutely dire situation, doesn't it? Midian has overpowered Israel. As a result, people were literally being forced from their homes, resorting to live in dens in the mountains until they felt it was safe to return. Verse three, for whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them, devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, which is in the south, and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. Verse five, they would come up with their livestock, their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, if you've been following long, this is by far the most significant suffering and oppression that we've seen Israel experience in this book. They're living in fear with little food. The land is ravaged. The only thing that locusts leave behind is destruction. And people were starving, literally. It's devastating. This went on year after year for seven long years. Years. So just stop for a second. Try to imagine that that were your situation, your story, your family. But what I don't want us to miss is the why. Why was this happening? And the Bible makes a clear connection in verse one between Israel's sin on the one hand and their suffering on the other. Do you see it? That there is a straight line that is drawn from their idolatry, doing what was right in their own eyes which is evil in God's eyes to the Lord, giving them into the hand of their enemies. And what we are meant to see in the description that you and I just read is a depiction. It's a picture of sin and its effects at the physical suffering that Israel was experiencing here was preaching a sermon about what was happening in them spiritually. They didn't have eyes to hear eyes to see or ears to hear. Now, we have to be clear here that not every form of suffering that you and I experience in this life is the result of our sin. We can't and shouldn't always draw straight lines like that. Jesus in the Gospels makes that abundantly clear. Yet, at the same time, what we can say is that we should not be surprised that when we make money our God or sex or comfort or people-pleasing, 
And those things we initially use to serve us actually end up enslaving us. That's precisely what is happening in Israel here. It's a picture of what sin does. It leaves behind destruction. You've seen it. You've experienced it. Broken families, ruined relationships, leaves us empty, destitute. If not now, eventually, especially in the end. So let's be clear about what is in front of us in this passage. That sin is evil in the sight of the Lord. And what we deserve is to be decimated because of it. So what does Israel do? It's what you and I do. They cry out to God for help. And the question then is, is this a genuine cry of repentance? Of real sorrow for their sin? Or is it simply regret? They just feel sorry for themselves for their situation. And I think it's clear from the overall context that it is more regret than repentance. Point two, the convicting sermon. And what we've seen over the last two weeks is that when Israel cries for help, God sends a judge to deliver them. That's not what he does here, does he? At least not initially. He doesn't send a savior. Instead, he sends a prophet to preach a sermon. How's that for help? I think part of the reason for that is this isn't a Disney movie like Aladdin. You know, one with Robin Williams. God isn't a genie in a lamp that we just rub every time we are in trouble and out he comes to grant our every wish and whim. He is not our cosmic butler in the sky that we just ring the bell for him to come down and give us what we ask for. Because if he were, God would not be loving or good or glorious. Why? Because he's after our worship. He's after our hearts. Because there is a greater enemy than Midian at the gate. That's not your primary problem or your greatest need. Sin, idolatry, and your love affair with the gods of this world is your problem. And being delivered from my wrath is your greatest need. So take a listen to the sermon the prophet preaches here, starting in verse 8. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. What's he saying here? He's reminding them that they owed their very existence to God. Their story from start to finish is grace. Saved from slavery, set apart, as his treasured possession established in the promised land. He was their God. They were his people. So why would they not want to worship him alone? How could God like that not have their affections after all he has done for them? Is it not the same question that you and I should be asking ourselves, even more so in light of the cross? Because the gospel of God's grace is meant to convict, to confront. It's meant to cause us to see our sin as insanely evil in light of the supreme beauty and value of Jesus. As Paul says in Romans 2, it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. And the indictment that God has against them is there at the end of verse 10. That in spite of who I am and all that I have done for you, yet you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, Israel didn't deem God or his word as worthy of their worship and obedience. They thought that the gods of this world could give them what he couldn't and the things he said they should and shouldn't do for their good, he actually wasn't being all that serious about. They were just suggestions for their consideration, not commands to be obeyed. Today, we might say, God doesn't really mean what he says about what our money is meant for or the dangers of being rich. He doesn't really mean what he says about what our bodies are meant for 
or marriage or the horrors of hell. And so we disregard and therefore we disobey God's word. And then like Israel, when our world falls apart around us, we wonder where God is in all of it. And we come to the same conclusion that Gideon does in verse 14. He says, it must mean that he's forsaken us rather than the other way around. Because if the Lord is with us, how could he let all this happen? I was reading an article the other day by a woman who's endured an enormous amount of suffering in her life. It started as an infant when she contracted polio, which still debilitates her to this day. Then her son died and then her husband left her, none of which is a result of her sin. It's a hard and a heartbreaking story. And just like many of you, she has wrestled with this very question. Listen to how she ends the article. And this can be applied across the board to all of our suffering. She says, when God brings trials into your life, don't question his love or turn away. God is doing something breathtaking in you, for you, and through you. Because the Lord is with you and because the Lord loves you, everything that happens to you is filled with divine purpose. Every trial that you endure has passed through God's loving hands. And one day when your faith becomes sight, you will thank him for every difficulty. So see what this means. It means even in Israel's suffering here, even in his handing them over to their enemies, God had not forsaken his people, nor has he forsaken you in your suffering. It is because he was with them that he sent a prophet. But notice that the preacher doesn't finish his sermon. Not the first to do it. He won't be the last to do it. There's no therefore here. He just leaves it hanging, right? So what is God going to do about their disobedience? Third point, the condescending savior. Now by condescending here, I don't mean one who looks down on others, but rather one who comes down, who condescends and meets them right where they are. And that's what we find here in this meeting between the angel of the Lord and Gideon. And we first need to ask the question, okay, who is this angel of the Lord here? Look at the language. Notice the beginning of verse 11. It says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Then notice what it says in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him. And again in verse 16, and the Lord said to him. So clearly this isn't just, run-of-the-mill angel, as if there are any of those. This is what theologians call a theophany in the Old Testament, the physical manifestation of God himself, made up of two Greek words, God and to show, God and to show. So the one then who shows up here is none other than the one we've come to know as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Savior of the world, coming down to meet with Gideon. This is a divine encounter. It's the only one in the entire book of Judges. So this is significant. And it's clear from the context that Gideon is slow to recognize the one who is speaking to him. In fact, he will need a sign to prove that it is, which God is gracious to give here. So that's the angel of the Lord. Second, what do we learn about Gideon here? We learn from verses 11 and 15, he lives in the northern part of Israel in a town called Ophrah. He's the son of Joash, the Abizrite. He belongs to the tribe of Manasseh, which means he is a man caught in the middle of the Midianite oppression. Because what's he doing? What do we find him doing? Well, he's beating out wheat in the wine press, but that's not where you beat out wheat. Normally you would do it 
out on the threshing floor where the wind could blow away the chaff. But the text tells us why he's doing it there. It's to hide it from the Midianites because Gideon has seen this happen before that they could come and steal his family, family's food and leave them to starve. So I don't necessarily think this is the first evidence of Gideon's lack of faith. It's just simply the real world situation in which he finds himself. Perhaps this is just prudence and wisdom. Nevertheless, without a doubt, like the rest of Israel, Gideon is living in fear of the future, believing that God has forsaken his people. So what does God say to Gideon in these verses? We find it there in verses 12 through 16, but let me try to summarize it in just a sentence. And this is really the main point of the passage, I think. God is promising, he's making a promise to Gideon that his presence and power will be with him to accomplish what seems humanly impossible, namely the salvation of his people. Now put yourself in Gideon's shoes. That would be a lot for one person to take in, wouldn't it? So how does he respond in this passage? He's like, you got the wrong guy. There's no possible way. I'm way too weak and inadequate for such a task. In that moment, Gideon certainly didn't see himself the way that God saw him. He didn't. God calls him a mighty man of valor when he's over here hiding. And it's as if God picks up his face, looks him in the eye and says to him, it's true, maybe not in and of yourself. But with me, that it's exactly who you are. Like you are weak, but I'm strong. You are fearful, but I'll fight for you. Guys, maybe that's exactly what you need to hear this morning, whatever it is you are facing. So, what, so don't miss the first and the last thing that God wants Gideon to have ringing in his ears as he goes and what he wants ringing in our ears. They're the words, I will be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You see, the Savior condescends to meet Gideon in his weakness, fear, and inadequacy, and he does the same for you and me. As his word promises us, his presence and power to accomplish his purposes. Now, remember the indictment that God has against Israel. They've been unfaithful. They haven't obeyed God's voice. And so the question now is, will Gideon? Well, Gideon, he's heard God speak. He has seen God's face, but will he respond in faith in spite of his fear? And this takes us to point four, the altar call. This is our come to Jesus moment, as it were, come to Jesus moment. It's where the rubber meets the road. How serious are we about our sin after getting a glimpse of the savior and hearing his voice? Are we serious enough to sever the root of it? Serious enough to cut down the idols in our hearts? Because it is not enough just to hear God's word. His word calls for a response, for repentance, for faith, for a costly obedience Because guys, if we're serious about turning our backs on the false gods of success, power, wealth, and sex, and turning to the Lord to worship him alone, it is going to cost us. It certainly did for Gideon. And we see it there in verses 25 through 27. First, we find out that Gideon's own family is complicit in Israel's idolatry. It's his father's altar, for goodness sake, which likely means Gideon was guilty of idolatry himself. Second, God commands him to pull down Baal's altar and to cut down the Asherah and to build an altar to the Lord. Notice the word, his God, on top of it. 
The point, there's only one true God in Israel who is worthy of worship and he has no rival. Third thing, he was to take a bull that was seven years old. Incidentally, the same number of years, by the way, that God had given Israel into the hands of their enemies, symbolizing a perfect sacrifice. He was to offer it as a burnt offering with the very wood of the Asherah pole that he was to cut down. And then comes the key phrase in verse 27. Don't miss it. It says, so Gideon took 10 men of his servants and he did as the Lord had told him. Did as the Lord had told him. God had spoken and where Israel failed, Gideon obeyed. And as Baal and Asherah go up in smoke, God is pleased with the sacrifice. This was Gideon's altar call. His personal response to hearing God's spoken word Repenting of idolatry and sin began at home with him. And if you and I want to see renewal and revival in our own land and here in Austin, it begins with us. Our counterfeit gods got to go. But Gideon's faith like ours is imperfect. It's flawed. He's fearful. It says he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day. So he did it by night, right? But don't miss what the text actually says says he obeyed just as the Lord had told him. I like how one commentator puts it. I think he's right. He says, some may blame Gideon for demolishing Baal's altar by night, fearing relatives and city fathers. I doubt that it matters. Did God tell him to do it by day? Did God tell him he couldn't be afraid or did God simply tell him to do it? Evidently, obedience was essential and heroism optional. Gideon knew this would be a costly obedience. He knew it because following the Lord always is. Go after people's gods, the things that they love and they trust in, they go after you, which is exactly what happens here. Everyone eventually finds out and they want to kill him. So whether he did it by day or by night, it didn't really matter because when you tell people what God says about sexuality or about money and possessions or whatever it may be, just pick an idol of our day. You should expect opposition first from within your own heart, right? Then second from the world, because it's coming. It's coming. And it was about to come to Gideon and his faith in God and his word will be put to the test. This takes us to the fifth and the final scene, the confirmation sign. Notice that this section ends where the story began. Israel's enemies have come together. They've crossed the Jordan. They're encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And it says in verse 33 that the spirit of the Lord closed Gideon. So he blows the battle trumpet. He calls the other tribes to come and to follow him. And they assemble for the fight. Big showdown. This is where we find Gideon's famous fleece. But again, we've already acknowledged he feels weak and fearful, which is precisely how you and I would feel staring down an enemy much stronger than us. But here's the key. Don't miss it. Here's the key. We find him in spite of his fear, walking by faith in obedience to God's word at great risk to his life and the lives of all of those men. And he doesn't have a Bible like us. Because what Gideon knows for certain, and it's true, that if God is not with him, they don't have a chance. So his faith in the spoken word needs support a physical sign of God's presence and power that before we begin this battle, I need something tangible to know that you are who you say you are and your word is true. So what does he do? He lays a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. He's not in hiding anymore. 
It's wet the first morning, the ground's dry, which is not the greater sign because wool easily absorbs moisture. The greater sign comes the next morning when the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. And in that moment, God is shown to be not only sovereign over Israel's enemies, that he's the one who will save them, but he's also sovereign over nature itself. And it's through the sign in conjunction with his spoken word that God once again graciously confirms for Gideon the promise of his presence and power to accomplish his saving purposes through him. And the chapter ends. And so the question for each of us is, so what? Why should this matter to me? Well, there are lots of reasons we could mention, but for starters, did you notice that the flow of the story follows what we do here on Sundays? I hadn't noticed until I was working on it this week. That the way this unfolds is what we do every week when we gather for worship. Like Israel, God, the only one who is worthy, calls us to worship by his word. And in light of who he is, we are confronted with our sin and are convicted and compelled by the gospel through the preaching of his word. Remembering that we've already been delivered by our greatest enemy, by sin and death, by our savior who condescended the word himself taking on our flesh and was condemned on the cross in our place. And that we are called to respond in faith and obedience as he promises his presence and power to accomplish all of his purposes through us. And what does he do? He graciously confirms his spoken word by giving us a physical sign in the Lord's Supper. And then he sends us out into the world, clothed with his strength and spirit to fight the battles that he has already won. So if you feel weak and fearful and inadequate this morning, know that the God of Gideon is your God and the gospel really is that good. So with that, let me offer three quick applications and be done first. Like Gideon, what altars do you need to tear down today in response to God's word? What altars? What sins hit closest to home? What idols of the heart need demolished? Is it money and all that it gives? Maybe there are radical steps that you know need to be taken to show that gold is not your God, but God is your God. We need to hear and to heed the words of Jesus when he says, no one can serve two masters. Get in, you can't serve Baal and Yahweh. You can't serve God and money, Jesus says. One has to go, so take your pick. Whatever it is in your life, the altar call is given to all of us. One has to go, so take your pick. How will we respond to what God has spoken Because following Jesus, guys, it's costly, but it is not crazy. It is the sanest and the safest thing you could ever possibly do. Second thing, what might God through his word be calling you to do? An act of faith that feels impossible right now because you can only see yourself as weak and inadequate, just like Gideon. Maybe you feel it in your parenting or your marriage or your work, or maybe God is calling you into missions to make the name of Jesus known among the nations, whatever it may be. If God could say to Gideon, my presence and power will be with you to accomplish my purposes, how much more so for you, a Christian in light of the cross and resurrection of Jesus who has his spirit. If God calls, he supplies the strength to see it through. So trust his word and act in faith in spite of your fear. Third and last, as you walk out of here this morning, you go about your week, having heard the word and come to the table. Don't ever forget who God says you are. Yes, you, fickle, fearful, conflicted Christian you. 
Remember, as Paul says in Romans, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's not always how we're going to feel or how we're going to see ourselves, but in Christ, with his strength, secure in his love, that is exactly who we are. We will never be forsaken in the fight of faith because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So preach that to yourself on repeat until the record wears out and come back next week and every week after to be confirmed in your calling in Christ Jesus. Because guys, it is God's good pleasure to be gracious to his people. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we pray now that you would apply these truths to our hearts. Thank you for the grace that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Would you help us now to see our sin, be willing to turn from it, to tear it out, to trust and love Jesus. For all those who are fearful and weak this morning, would you reassure our hearts that your presence and power are indeed with us and that you will accomplish all your purposes in our lives for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.